Please open your Bibles to Ephesians 1. We continue our sermon series to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Today we're looking at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, and these, these are two verses which are not typically given their own sermon often. Verses 9 and 10 are lumped in with the verses that come before or with the verses that come just after. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I, I confess that sometimes this happens to me as I'm, I'm reading my Bible and I'll come to, you know, two or three, four verses that um, aren't, aren't, aren't immediately clear to me. I don't immediately understand them. And, and I, I confess I have to fight against the temptation to kind of quickly skip through them and skip ahead to the next verses, the next section that I, that I understand. And in my opinion, verses 9 and 10 could be verses that we would be tempted to just kind of skip through on our way to the next section, uh, the next section that we more easily understand, to skip through, to, to get to verse 11 where we read about election and predestination again. But verses like 9 and 10 are why I do not want us to, to rush through Ephesians chapter 1, because these really are profound verses significant verses. These verses will teach us much about the, the mystery of redemptive history, teach us much about the mystery of our salvation, teach us much about the mystery of, of all we have in Christ. See, it's far more likely that we'll make too little of Christ than we will make too much of Christ. So you put it another way, these verses will teach us about what God has done in the past, where all of history is headed in the future, and why all of that matters for us here in the present. And so please remember, um, we're, I'm preaching through verses 9 and 10, but while we're in this magnificent section of Ephesians 1, from verse 3 to verse 14, I'm going to read all of it each and every week because from verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence in the original Greek text of over 200 words. And so I'm preaching through it little by little bit because I want us to, to, to not miss the, the theology and the truth and the doctrine and the doxology that's all loaded into each verse, each sentence. I don't want us to miss that. But I'm reading the whole section each week because I don't want us to lose the context of, of what Paul is saying in this, this prayer hymn. Of Ephesians 1. And so hear now God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 under three headings. First, we'll look at the past, what God has done through redemptive history for your salvation. We'll look at the past. Then we'll look at the future. Where is all of history heading? What is the end purpose? Who is at the center of it all? I'll give you a hint. The same person is at the center of the past and the center of the future. So we'll look at the past, the future, we'll also look at the present. What difference should this mean for you today? What difference should all of this make in your life this upcoming week on Thursday at, at, at 1.30 p.m.? What difference should it make? So first, the, the past. What has God done throughout redemptive history for your salvation? A lot. An awful lot. Look, look at verse 9 in the beginning of verse 10 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And so we're going to look at verse 9 in the first part of verse 10, kind of phrase by phrase. And so that first key phrase is the mystery of his will. So look at the first part of verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of God's will. Now think about that word mystery. Paul's use of the word translated mystery is is not referring to some unsolvable puzzle. It's not referring to a a murder mystery that you read about in a novel or that you see on a movie with complexity and intrigue. Now I, I like those type of mysteries. In fact, one of my favorite board games to play with my kids is the game Clue. And I trust you're all familiar with the board game Clue. I'm not seeing heads shake. I trust you're familiar. Okay, very good. Okay. You may have to preach a different sermon if you're not familiar with the board game Clue. You know, but in that board game, a murder has been committed. Every player is trying to figure out who did it. Was it Miss Scarlet in the library with the rope? Or was it Mr. Uh, Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with a candlestick? And I love that game, and I have to admit, I hold a, a dominating winning streak over all of my kids in that game. A dominating winning streak. But, but that, that's not the type of mystery that Paul's referring to. So if you look again, look again at this verse. The mystery of Ephesians 1.9 is a truth that was once hidden that's now revealed. It's, it's a truth once hidden that's now revealed to us by God's revelation. That's now revealed to us by God's word and in his, and in his perfect timing. So truth once hidden that's now revealed to us by God's word in his perfect timing. And that word mystery appears many times in Paul's letters, and we're going to encounter it at least six more times in the, the book of Ephesians. And once uh, a couple of the main places are in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 6. And so in Ephesians 3, verses 3 and 4, we read, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
And then later in Ephesians 6, verse 19, we see, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, we see in our verse, Ephesians 1, 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of God's will. So this mystery in Ephesians 1, 9 is a truth that was once hidden, that's now been revealed to us by God's word in his perfect timing, and now this mystery is being openly declared. And so Pastor Richard Phillips explains it this way, for Paul, the mystery of God's will is a story that can only be known by revelation. And it's only known fully as events ripen to maturity in God's timing. The mystery of salvation is something no one could ever figure out by reason alone, not because it's irrational, but because it's so marvelous. God's mystery involves a wisdom of grace not revealed by the common experience of life, much less by the conventional wisdom of this world. The mystery is the salvation story made known by God's revelation through the prophets and the apostles, what we call our Bible, and brought to full expression in God's timing through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you see, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, the, the mystery of God's saving will for us, it's only revealed through God's word. And this is important we realize this. Because every time, every time people try to ignore what the Bible says about God, about Christ, what the Bible says about salvation, every time the world, every time individuals seek to, to ignore that, and then try to think of what makes sense to them, their own way to achieve redemption, their own way to achieve forgiveness, their own way to reach heaven. They always get it wrong, and they always get it wrong in, in very similar ways. You know, every, that's why every single man-made religion presents a, a fairly similar false way to earn one's own salvation. Even though they have different names for them. I mean, whether it's the Eightfold Path of Buddhism or the Five Pillars of Islam or the, the Cosmic Moral Accounting System I mentioned last week. Remember the Cosmic Moral Accounting System where, where our good deeds and our nice things are credits to our account and yet our sins and the selfish things that we do are debits from our account. And the way that, that man-made religion, that philosophy of life works is that as long as our good outweighs our bad, we're okay. As long as we're better than average, we're fine. Because we believe that, that somehow, that through our good works, we can, we can earn our way, make our way, work our way to heaven. That our good deeds can, in a sense, not just outweigh our bad, but even cancel out our bad. That our good deeds can, we can redeem ourselves from our sins through our good deeds. You see, and people will always attempt to create a path to work their way on their own to, their, to redemption by their good works, by their good deeds outweighing, even canceling out their sins. However, the mystery of the gospel, which is now revealed to us by God's word and in his perfect timing, is that salvation is only by grace and not by works. Only by grace through faith in Christ. Only by grace through faith faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So let's look at the next key phrase in verse 9, and that is, in Christ. See, making known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So the word translated purpose, uh, it literally means good pleasure. Good pleasure. So making known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of the gospel, which is now revealed to us by God's word in his perfect timing, is that salvation is only by grace, not our works, only by grace through faith in Christ, according to God's purpose, according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ. So don't miss a couple of very significant things here. First, don't miss this. It pleased God to save you. You're a Christian. Don't miss that. It pleased God to save you. I don't know if you believe that or not, but you should. It's true. He he loves you. He delights to save you. He really has given you his word in love for your good. It pleased God to save you. Second, Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the mystery of God's will and good pleasure for his people. Don't miss that. Jesus Christ really is the centerpiece of all things, which we will soon see um, in our text. See, Jesus is the, the center of our Christian faith, not merely because we can relate to him. Though we can, but not merely because of that. Jesus is the center of our Christian faith, not merely because Jesus helps us out, because he lends us a helping hand. No, Jesus is the center of our faith. He's the center of our worship because God's eternal purpose and good pleasure is centered on Christ and manifested through Christ in a unique way. He is our one and only Redeemer. That's what Jesus says about himself in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whereas Peter preached in Acts 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And as we saw last week in Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Christ, in Christ alone, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. That redemption is not found any other way. It's not found through our good deeds canceling out our bad deeds. It's not found through our obedience canceling out our sin. We don't redeem ourselves. That redemption is only found in Christ through his blood. And so we've looked at the mystery of God's will in Christ. Now one more phrase, the, the fullness of time. The fullness of time. So look again at verse 9, the first part of verse 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, and we see in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. See, the mystery of Ephesians 1.9 is a truth that was once hidden that's now been revealed to us by God's word, centered on Christ, and revealed in God's perfect timing. But what we see in Ephesians 1.10 as a plan for the fullness of time. And keep in mind that we're still under our first heading We're still talking about the past. Remember, Paul is still teaching us about what God has done in the past. And even thus far in our study of Ephesians 1, Paul's already taught us so much about God's plan of redemption, even from eternity past. Hasn't he? If you've been with us, remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 4? Even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
That's about the past, eternity past. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 1 and many other places that there was an agreement, a covenant between the persons of the Holy Trinity and eternity past. And theologians call this the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is the eternal, pre-temporal, before the creation of the world, intra-Trinitarian agreement, covenant among the Father, Son, Holy Spirit to plan and execute the redemption of God's people. That God the Father authored this plan of redemption in eternity past. He chose a people, the elect. And God the Father gave God the Son the charge to save them, to save his people, to save the elect. And so we go back to Ephesians 1.10, we read, as a plan for the fullness of time. See, in the Bible, we see the unfolding of God's covenant of redemption through the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. I know these are, these are fairly new terms for some of us, covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and so I want to try to explain them. And our Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole chapter, it's a short chapter, but a whole chapter devoted to God's covenant with his people. So it's chapter 7, here's what it says, the first covenant made with man was the covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe." So once again, being aware that, that covenant of works, covenant of grace could be new terms to some of us, listen to how Richard Phillips explains the outworking of God's plan of redemption in the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and gave the covenant of works by which mankind might be justified. Adam failed, and we fell under the curse of sin. But God had prepared the intervention of his own son through the covenant of grace so that all salvation would be through and in Christ. God was not caught off guard by the fall. He immediately made great promises of an offspring who would suffer but would conquer for our salvation. That's, that promise is made in Genesis 3.15. And so I want to take you there. If you go back to Genesis 3, we'll begin in verse 14, then we'll look at verse 15. So this is in the garden. After Adam's sin, and God is speaking to the serpent in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, here's the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's the promise of a coming Savior, a coming Redeemer, who will be born of the woman, offspring of the woman. And through his suffering, his heel will be bruised. Through his suffering, he will defeat Satan. He will defeat Satan's sin and death itself. But this promised offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, would not enter our world and take on human flesh for thousands of years. 
And yet think about all God did to preserve his covenant promise to his people. Think about that. I mean, God preserved Noah and his family in the ark. Why? Because of these covenant promises. Years later, God provided a son to Abraham and eventually grew Israel into a people. Why? Because God remembered his promise. Then when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God did not forget his promise. God delivered and redeemed his people from slavery. And God gave them the law through Moses. God brought them into the promised land. God made them into a great nation. God God gave them David to be a great king, a king after God's own heart. And then after the Israelites fell into great sin, to the point they were carried away from the promised land into exile, even then, the Lord remained faithful. He did not forget his covenant promises, and he brought them back to the land. And then after hundreds of years of silence from God to his people, listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, have you heard that phrase this morning? That's Ephesians 1.10, that first phrase. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman. Why is Paul saying, adding that phrase, born of the woman? Because he's pointing back to that clear promise in Genesis 3.15. The promised one, the offspring of the woman who was to come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, in God's good, kind, loving purpose, he has brought his plan of redemption to pass at just the right time in just the right way. As a plan for the fullness of time, at just the right time, God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived the perfect sinless life, died the atoning substitutionary death on Calvary's cross for our sins, and rose from the dead for our salvation. See, the mystery of Ephesians 1.9 is the truth that was once hidden, that's now revealed. It's the truth once hidden, that's now revealed to us by God's word, centered on Christ and revealed in God's perfect timing. As Ephesians 1.10 says, as a plan for the fullness of time. So we've been looking at the past, what God has done through redemptive history for your salvation. And now the next heading is the future. That where is all of history heading? What is the end purpose? And so don't miss this. That the past was centered on the promised Savior who was to come. Centered on Christ. And we're going to see that the future is also centered on Christ. Centered on the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look at verse 10... Look at all of verse 10 now, as a plan for the fullness of time. It says, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. That phrase is a plan for the fullness of time. It it both points backwards to the past and what God has done throughout redemptive history. And we'll see it points forward to the future, to where history is heading. And do you see, looking at verse 10, do you see that, that history has a destination? Has a purpose? Do you see what it is? The destination, the purpose, the end goal of history is that all things, all things means all things, all things will be united together in and under the lordship of Christ. In and under the lordship of Christ. Under the headship of Christ. See that English phrase that's translated to unite all things in verse 10, that's just a single word in the original Greek text. And it shows up in only one other place 
in the New Testament. That one other place is Romans chapter 13, verse 9. Here's what it says. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up. That's the same Greek word. It's translated are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here that Greek word means, it's translated as summed up, which means that all of the other commandments can be summed up in and under that one command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or put another way, all the other commandments can be summed up under the heading of love for one's neighbor. Okay, so look again back at our text in Ephesians 1.10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And I hope it's beginning to become a little clearer, make more sense. The destination, the purpose, the end goal of history is that all things will be united together in and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen how Pastor Ian Hamilton explains this. The Bible has a breathtaking panoramic understanding of redemption. God's redeeming work in Christ transcends rescuing sinners from their bondage to sin and to Satan. Okay, transcends that. It's not less than that. Okay, but it's more than that. It transcends rescuing sinners from their bondage to sin and to Satan. God's redeeming work in Christ embraces the totality of the cosmos. Right, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. The redeeming grace that God has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight has an ultimate end in view that goes beyond the redemption of individual sinners. It's never less than that, but it goes beyond that. The whole creation that was lost to God through the fall will be restored to God through Christ. Okay, look again at Ephesians 1 verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. That all things means all things. And things in heaven, things on earth is Paul's way of saying the whole of created reality. And I think Sinclair Ferguson is very helpful here. He says, because of the fall, the world of men and things has been fractured and fragmented. I mean, even today, even between, between the early service and this one, and just, just walking up and down Main Street, I, I had conversations with, with one person who, you know, is battling cancer and has some fairly meaningful surgeries. Another person who was telling me about, about their spouse, you know, undergoing some kidney failure, but, 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 they, but, but, they're, but they feel okay, and so they're making peace with that because to, to fix that would probably lower their quality of life. Talking to someone else whose extended family member had passed away this morning. Right, because of the fall, the world of men and things has been fractured and fragmented. That we know, that we, we know from our own lives, our own hearts, our own circumstances, we know from looking at the world around us that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That Adam's sin plunged into disorder and confusion the whole creation over which he was appointed as God's steward king. The fallen world no longer adds up to the perfect, harmonious cosmos God brought into being and planned to glorify. 
Now in Christ, God means to save his creation, to restore it and transform it into the glory of its original destiny. This is what Christ came to accomplish. Okay, put another way, the fall into sin was real. But there is a coming restoration that's even more real. If we can believe that. And it is. And the Bible tells us about this from beginning to end. It talks about this in the Old Testament and the New Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 11, verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall one day be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. And in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right? a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. Then we go further in Revelation to the second to last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepares a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then look again, back at our text, Ephesians 1 verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And as we hear about heaven, I know it can be easy for us to only focus on the good news that one day all things in heaven and things on earth will be united and then celebrate what a great day that will be. And it will be such a great day. However, if we look at verse 10, I actually think the key phrase in Ephesians 1 verse 10 is not that things in heaven and things on earth will be united. Rather, I think the key phrase is in him. The key phrase is, in Christ. And this points to the absolute centrality of Christ's person and work in this uniting of all things in heaven and all things on earth. Okay, so put another way, yes, Jesus is our Savior. And praise God. Yes, Jesus is our perfect Redeemer. However, Jesus is far more than merely our Redeemer, if, if one can be merely our Redeemer. But Christ is so much more than many of us imagine him to be. That we cannot make too much of Christ. And we can easily make too little of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want us to do that. And so I, I, I want to direct you to Colossians 1 verses 15 and 20. And listen to what Paul says about Christ. This was our affirmation of faith last Sunday. We, we use it pretty regularly as an affirmation of faith. Because of what it says about Christ. We can't make too much of him. Listen to who he is. 
Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so if you're thinking, okay, Richard, I can tell that this matters to you, but but I'm still trying to put it all together. I'm hoping, I'm praying that you will see that rather than merely longing to go to heaven, that we all ought to be longing to be in Christ. For it's in Christ and only in him that the eternal heavenly life and every spiritual blessing can be ours. Both now, in this life, and on into eternity. You see, the past, what has God done through redemptive history for your salvation? The future, where is all of history heading? What is the end purpose? Both are centered on Christ. And so then let's ask this question about the present. What difference should this mean for us today? Well, We need to know where all history will end so that we can live now in light of that truth. That we need to to lift our gaze above our present circumstances in order to begin to see the present in light of the future. Or put another way, knowing the truth about the glorious end which awaits us in Christ helps us to face the truth about our present world in every area of our lives. The beginning with the end in mind helps us to rightly see and interpret and live in the present. So there's a few things to point out. First, knowing the truth about the glorious end which awaits us in Christ should change the way we think about the various opportunities that we face. I mean, if we live with an eternal perspective, then we will no longer live for only the here and now. We will no longer only live for that imminent frame that's before us. The imminent frame, you know, what we see and what we can touch and hold on to and put in our pockets and and taste and hoard and accumulate for ourselves. You see, if all there is is the here and now, this imminent frame without eternity, then the game and goal of this life has to be get all you can get now, enjoy it while you can because you can't take it with you. So it only makes sense to pursue all the temporal, all the material, all the relationship pleasures you can in the here and now because you only live once and for a short, short time, and so you might as well get all you can get. However, realizing the purpose of this world is to bring all things together in and under Christ, it can and it should lift our gaze. Lift our gaze above this imminent frame. Lift our gaze above the horizon of this present world. And it can and it should enable us to live with an eternal perspective. And living with an eternal perspective, with the end in mind, with what awaits us in Christ, can and should impact and radically change how we live in the present. Changes everything. An eternal perspective will still mean you're excited and grateful to have the money you have and to buy the things you need and to buy the things you enjoy, but it will also mean you will be just as excited to use your money to support and fund kingdom gospel ministry that will endure forever. 
An eternal perspective will still mean that you're excited about your earthly opportunities and your earthly goals and ambitions and achievements. But it will also mean that you will delight in an ambition to use your God-given gifts and your God-given abilities to serve in Christ's kingdom and in his church for his glory. Second, knowing the truth about the glorious end which awaits us in Christ should change the way we think about evangelism. It should give us a sense of urgency. When we begin to think about the end of all things, we begin to think about how Revelation 21 describes heaven. We begin to think about Christ uniting all things, things in heaven, things in earth, in himself. It also makes me think about what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, where he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, one day all will bow the knee before King Jesus. However, only those who hear and believe the gospel in this life, who bend their knee in this life, will be saved from their sins will be reconciled to God, will be adopted into God's family to spend all eternity with God and his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, if we live with an eternal perspective, then we will not only want to financially support our local church and local missionaries and around the world and local ministries that are devoted to evangelism, but we'll also want to share the good news of the gospel with our family members and our friends. And we'll also be eager to want to invite them to join us to join us here on Sunday morning where they're going to, they're going to hear the word of God preached. They're going to hear the gospel shared over and over and over again. And we'll be all the more devoted to praying for them, to praying for God to move and work in their lives, praying for God to, to, to unstop their ears, to give them spiritual eyes to see, for God to, to move and work in their hearts, to soften their hearts, praying for God to save them. But then lastly, knowing the truth about the glorious end which awaits us in Christ should change the way we think about the various trials we face. Richard Phillips says, The world lives from the present to the uncertain future, filled with anxiety and doubt. It lives from the present, that's in view, no lifting of our gaze, only focus really microscopically on the present, from the present to the uncertain future, filled with anxiety and doubt. I mean, have we not all seen that the last two years? That this is the way the world lives, but, Christian, but the Christian lives from the certain future back to the present. And our lives are thereby made secure in the knowledge of God's sure salvation. Physically, we are part of the old dying world, but spiritually, we are part of the new world that even now is coming back to life. As you've heard me share with you, that for the Christian, death is not passing from the land of the living to the land of the dead. For the Christian, death is passing from the land of the dying to the land of the living. We will spend eternity with our God and with his people. And so listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. That Paul says whenever we have this eternal perspective, that we'll go through life comparing the light momentary affliction, which often doesn't seem light. It, it often seems terrible. It seems terrifying. It can seem impossible. But Paul says if we have an eternal perspective, we realize it really is light momentary affliction weighed against the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And whenever you put them both on the scale, the weight of glory and the light momentary afflictions are seen in their proper light. See, do you realize that Paul was a prisoner when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians? He's a prisoner. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman officer. And yet, Paul's mind and heart were flooded with thoughts of eternity. An eternity with his God, which was certain and secured because of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And that's where his joy comes from. That's where the doxology that we, we see being poured out from him in Ephesians 1 comes from. There's no greater comfort than this. There's no greater hope than this. But we can't see it if, if our gaze is focused on the here and now, on the present circumstances. That gives us blurry vision. You know, in, the, in, in the first service, if you don't believe me, you can ask Patrick. The sun was beaming through that, 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 that circular window there. And I mean, it, 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 I mean, it was punching you in the face. If you turn, boom. I mean, I, I, was, I was worried I was not going to even be able to preach to anybody over here because it was, it was serious. And I couldn't see anything. I was blinded. I was blinded by it. And that's exactly what our present circumstances do to us. It blinds us. It gives us blurry vision. We're not able to see things in the right light. That eternal perspective, it, it, it corrects that. Listen to how John Stott puts it. As for us, how blurred is our vision in comparison with his, with Paul's, even though he's in prison? How small is our mind? How narrow are our horizons? Easily and naturally, we slip into a preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. But we need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations in the light of our past election and future perfection. And that's what, that's what Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 has been about. right? Our past election and our future perfection. Then if we shared the apostle's perspective, we would also share his praise for doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life would become worship and we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. And so I want to leave with focusing on Christ. So who is this Christ in which we have been so richly blessed? Let me remind you of what Paul writes in Colossians 1. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that the mystery of the gospel 
which is now revealed to us by God's word, by your word and your perfect timing. There's a salvation that's only by grace, not our works. It's only by grace through faith in Christ. According to your good pleasure, which you set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Please help us to think correctly about the past of redemptive history, about the future where all history is heading, so that we can live with that proper confidence and comfort and security and assurance and eternal perspective here in the present, here today. Father, please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.